During the First World War, it took four hours for the armistice to come into effect, and then over 12 hours for troops on the Western Front to actually stop fighting. The result of this tardiness was some 11,000 casualties on the Allied side alone. In history, as today, things often take a long time to happen, and war is no exception. However, while some ponderous wars were still being fought hours after they'd finished, the Anglo-Zanzibar War of 1896 managed to be started, prosecuted, and wrapped up all within the hour. From beginning to end, it lasted just 38 minutes, making it the shortest recorded war in human history. The brief Anglo-Zanzibar War represents a fascinating outlier in warfare, not just because it was unbelievably short, but also because of the unusual events that occurred within it. For those 38 minutes, family intrigue and betrayal met the no-nonsense might of Victorian Britain. The result was an unexpected point-blank coastal artillery barrage of incredible proportions. This is the story of the Anglo-Zanzibar War. The Sultanate of Zanzibar was a rich and prosperous kingdom based around the Zanzibar Archipelago, a series of islands off the coast of East Africa. Trade was fundamental to the history of these islands, for they occupied the perfect location from which to conduct trade between the resource-rich Kenyan coast and the wider world. This trade brought great riches to the island, as the goods flowed into and out of the archipelago, riches came to the area. And with the coming of riches came competition and war. Here is where the Zanzibar Sultanate comes in, for they themselves were not peaceful natives, but yet another invader of these rich isles. The Imam of Oman, Saif bin Sultan, had built himself a powerful navy and was looking for opportunities to use it. These islands, rich in spices and ivory, seemed the perfect place. In 1698, he easily drove the ragtag Portuguese garrison out, forged a new kingdom, seized the land on the islands, and redistributed it among the Omanese. The Sultanate of Zanzibar was born. With the domination of the region complete, the new overlord set about the business of all established new rulers, making money. Arab aristocrats established a plantation economy on a large scale, using slave labor to cultivate cloves, a spice so valuable it was worth more than its weight in gold in Europe. Soon, hundreds of dhows were docking in ports across the region each year, hailing from India, Persia, and Arabia, bringing with them iron, cloth, sugar, and dates, and leaving with gold, ivory, tortoiseshell, slaves, and the precious cloves. The Sultan and the aristocrats soon became filthy rich, flooding the Omani court with precious objects and raising many a grand building from their centers of power, the magnificent palaces of Stonetown among them. But there was another power in the region, one with which history may be more familiar, the British Empire. 
Based in the rainy islands of Northern Europe, the island of Britain occupied a favoured location for trading, much like Zanzibar. It too had grown rich from the slave trade, but unlike Zanzibar, the foundation of the wealth found in Britain was not clothes or any especially valuable commodity, but commerce and coal. Through innovations in banking and steam power, the inhabitants of that small nation found themselves to be fabulously rich and terrifyingly powerful. They also found themselves to be in position of the largest empire in human history, and many in Britain felt that it could still benefit from being that much larger. It also just so happened that seizing territory in Africa became all the rage in the 1880s. The reasons for this are complex, but the results were straightforward. Africa went from being 10% European controlled in 1881 to 90% in 1914. This scramble for Africa, as it's come to be known, saw a number of wars break out across the continent as European powers forced themselves upon African rulers. It was unprecedented in history. The Anglo-Zanzibar War took place towards the start of this process. Both Britain and Germany were very interested in the region, each looking to be the first to get their flag up the pole. Being the sensible gentlemen they so often declared themselves, they decided to compromise. Germany gained strategic control over the North Sea in Europe, and Britain gained control of the East African coast. Neither the Sultan of Zanzibar, however, nor any of his representatives were asked to attend the meeting. He had lost his kingdom over some chilly island in Northern Europe that he'd likely never even heard of, and nobody even bothered to tell him. Not so gentlemanly, after all. With this newfound influence, Britain started doing what Britain did best, bothering foreign rulers. Making a big, although admittedly likely necessary huff about the ongoing slave trade on the islands, for which the record was horrifying, Britain demanded changes be made. When this didn't happen, Britain then declared Zanzibar a protectorate of her empire and installed their own puppet sultan to look after the region. This person would look the part, sit on the throne of the historic kingdom, but the true power would be held by the British. Hamad bin Thuwaini, who had been a supporter of the British in the area, was given just that position in 1893. A life of luxury, if not power, was his. Hamad ruled for just over three years, until on August 25th, 1896, he died suddenly in his palace. Although the truth will never be fully known about the causes for his death, it is widely believed that his cousin, Khalid bin Bargash, had him poisoned. This assumption has more than just a hint of rumour to it. Within a few hours after Hamad's death, his cousin had already moved into the palace and declared himself Sultan. Hardly a murder mystery. Worst, Khalid had done all of this without seeking the opinion of the British. And with that, an act of familial betrayal was to inflate into all-out war. Was it worth declaring war on the British for a few days as Sultan? Living in the Grand Palace, banqueting in the main hall, and sleeping in the harem with its 99 concubines? Well, it doesn't sound bad, but as we'll see, the British Empire at the close of the 19th century is not a force anyone on Earth was prepared to mess with. Basil Cave, the British chief diplomat in the area, quickly declared that Khalid should stand down. Ignoring these warnings, the new Sultan instead started gathering his forces around the palace. Soon, 3,000 armed men had garrisoned in the place, 
complemented by guns and cannons, many of which had been diplomatic gifts from the British themselves. They even had the royal yacht, the HHS Glasgow. This was a sail ship modeled after the British frigate of the same name. Although outdated, she carried a significant arsenal, namely seven muzzle-loading nine-pounders and a Gatling gun. The young Sultan was ready and not about to be bossed around. Against this assembly, the British already had two warships anchored in the harbor, the HMS Philomel and the HMS Rush. These were later joined by the HMS Sparrow on the 25th, the same day British and colonial forces were sent ashore to keep the peace and protect the British consulate. Khalid and his men were now trapped in the palace. Cave now had a significant armed presence in the harbor of Stonetown, the capital city of the Zanzibar Sultanate, and felt confident of success in any encounter. He knew, however, that he did not have the authority to open hostilities without express approval from the British government. To prepare for all eventualities, he sent a telegram to the Foreign Office that evening, stating, quote, are we authorized in the event of all attempts at a peaceful solution proving useless to fire on the palace from the men of war? Whilst awaiting a reply from Whitehall, Cave continued issuing ultimatums to Khalid, but to no avail. The next day, Cave received a telegraph from Whitehall stating, quote, you are authorized to adopt whatever measures you may consider necessary and will be supported in your action by Her Majesty's government. Do not, however, attempt to take any action which you are not certain of being able to accomplish successfully. The attack had been sanctioned. The fate of Khalid was sealed. Alongside the telegraph came two British warships, the HMS Raccoon and the HMS St. George, the latter carrying Rear Admiral Harry Rawson commander of the British fleet in the area. The men, fortified in the palace, must have felt somewhat troubled as they saw ship after ship loaded with men and cannon steaming into the port in direct view of the palace. And troubled they should have been. Compare the Glasgow, the ship fighting for the Sultan, with its nine outdated 9.2-inch guns and single Gatling gun, to the St. George, which weighed 7,300 tons. She also had 9.2-inch guns, two of them. Hers, however, were the modern kind, breech-loading for firing speed and accuracy, and capable of firing not 9-pound cannon shells, but 380-pound high-explosive artillery. When it comes to cannons, it's not the size, it's how you use it. On top of that, 10 quick-firing 6-inch naval guns, capable of firing 100-pound shells at any target at the rate of 5 to 7 shells per minute each, and 12 6-pounder guns that had a ridiculous rate of fire, up to 25 shells a minute, all were on board. Many of these weapons were so capable and effective that they continued to be used for various purposes until the end of the Second World War. Bristling with this weaponry and anchored close to the palace itself, those guarding the palace would have seen quite clearly the destructive power of these ships. The final ultimatum to Khalid was issued on the 26th of August. In it, Cave demanded that Khalid leave the palace by 9am the next day. That night, Cave also demanded that all non-military boats leave the harbor in preparation for war. At 8 a.m. the next morning, only one hour before the ultimatum expired, Khalid sent a reply to Cave stating, quote, We have no intention of hauling down our flag, and we do not believe you would open fire on us. 
Cave replied in true 19th century British diplomatic style, stating that he had no desire to fire upon the palace, but quote, unless you do as you're told, we shall certainly do so. Khalid felt he saw a bluff and called it. It was the last decision he would ever make as Sultan. At 9am, the order was given for the British ships in the harbour to begin the bombardment. Two minutes later, the guns of the assembled British fleet answered the order. Thrush's first shot immediately dismounted an Arab 12-pounder cannon. The other artillery positions on the shore soon followed, cut down by withering British fire. The palace too received many shells. The defenders had been counting on the British not actually attacking. This barrage must have been terrifying. The Sultan's only military vessel, the HHS Glasgow, fired at the St. George at 9.05. Surrounded by bigger, more powerful warships, this attempt was close to suicidal. She caused no damage with her initial volley and was sunk immediately by return fire from the British vessels, who fired high explosive shells into her hull at close range. By 9.40, the guns of the fleet fell silent. 500 shells had been fired along with 4,100 machine gun rounds. The Sultan's palace was in ruins. Fire had broken out during the bombardment and much of the surrounding buildings had consequently burned and collapsed, as had the lighthouse and the Sultan's harem connected to it. Some 500 had died, mostly in the fires caused, and Khalid had fled through the back of the palace, taking refuge in the German consulate nearby. And when the shelling ceased, the Sultan's flag could be pulled down. The shortest war in history had officially ended after just 38 minutes. Though short, the war was not inconsequential. The Sultan's palace, the center of wealth and power in the Zanzibar archipelago for over a century, lay in ruins. Though the British took no losses, other than one officer who later recovered in hospital, the casualties among Khalid's forces were steep. Over 500 were dead, mostly as the palace they were sheltering in caught fire and collapsed. And so, with Khalid out of the way, the UK was free to place the pro-British Sultan Hamoud on the throne of Zanzibar. He ruled on behalf of Her Majesty's government, overseeing the reconstruction of the palace, although notably not the harem. The British decided to do away with indirect rule after six years, however, and annexed the kingdom outright. As for Khalid, he managed to escape with a small group of loyal followers to the local German consulate. Despite repeated calls from the British for his extradition, he was smuggled out of the country on October 2nd by the German Navy and taken to modern-day Tanzania. It was not until British forces invaded East Africa in 1916 that Khalid was finally captured and taken to St. Helena for exile. After serving time, he was later allowed to return to East Africa, where he died in 1927. Today, Zanzibar is part of the former German colony of Tanzania, though it is semi-autonomous, with its grand buildings built on trade and slavery profits and the Sultan's rebuilt palace, Stone Town is now a World Heritage Site. Tourism accounts for a big chunk of the island's economy, with some 600,000 visitors arriving yearly. Most of these, over 60%, are Europeans, though they now arrive shooting photos, not shells. Even here, the Sultanate that once ruled over the islands and the short war that ended it are often forgotten. 
but the Anglo-Zanzibar War of 1896, the shortest war in history, still represents a fascinating and bizarre chapter in Africa's history and the history of empire in the region. A family betrayal over power, an unwise decision to underestimate a Victorian imperialist, and a massive bombardment that destroyed a palace. History, stranger than any fiction.